So, um, not sure if this is the case for you, but there are certain scriptures for me that, uh, that not like this passage or this verse or that story's better than other stories. Like each scripture passage, each story, each verse has its, is, is equal. Uh, we understand that all scripture is God-breathed, but there, there are certain passages in the Bible that for whatever reason, maybe based on our experience or based on our story or based on our personality or maybe just a, a particular season in your life where a certain verse or certain passage like just spoke poignantly to you, there are certain verses that just kind of that, that draw uh, or pull the heartstrings for us, uh, maybe cultivate the intellect uh, in a different way if, if you're more of a mind guy than a heart guy or gal, I should say. All right, these uh, passages, just ones we really appreciate. Uh, for me, uh, the section in John's gospel, John 13 through 17, which is called the upper room discourse, is one that I have often gone to. I don't know if you ever had those devotional moments where you're like, where am I at today? Like, what's going on? You're just not sure. Maybe you're off your, your Bible reading plan and, you're, and there's certain places you're drawn back to. Psalm 25 is another one for me that I just love that, that kind of shapes and guides my prayer life. Well, again, the upper room discourse for me is, is always one that I've really appreciated. This unique moment in the life and ministry of Jesus where he's with his disciples in an upper room, and uh, it's an intimate moment, those, those four or five chapters. Intimate moment that Jesus has with his disciples. It begins by uh, making profound statements about what Jesus knows. Right, Jesus knows uh, that his hour has come. Right? Oftentimes in John's gospel, we hear, the hour has not come. My time has not yet come. But in this moment, he knows that his hour had come. He knows that the Father had given all things into his hands. He knows who he is. He knows where he came from. And he knows where he is going. Right? He's God. He's the Son of God, the Son of the Father. And the Father had given all things into his hands. So here he is with his disciples in this upper room. And we see that what does he do out of that knowledge? He gets up from the table. Right? He grabs a towel and he gets down and begins to do what? Wash the feet of his disciples. If you knew you were uh, you know, supreme above all, would you take that knowledge and get up from the table and begin to serve others by washing their feet? Intimate moment. Such a revelation of God's nature, Christ's nature. And so he gets up from the table, he pours water into a basin, he starts to wash their feet. He not only knows those things, but he also knows his betrayer. Right? He talks about the fact that someone was going to betray him. He washes his feet too. Something profound is revealed about Jesus. He, he loves his disciples. And he loves his disciples in a way that he serves his disciples. And he serves his disciples by washing their feet. And then at the conclusion of this initial part of this upper room discourse, 
he gives his disciples a command. He loves, he serves, he washes, and then he what? Commands. And what is this commandment at the end of John 13? He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In the context of love, Christ commands his disciples to love. In the context of love, loving relationship, enjoying receiving his love, Christ commands our love. Love for one another, according to Jesus, is a sign that we belong to him. And so here we are in this series diagnosis. We're asking some questions to get at personally, get at you, to evaluate and to begin to think about where you are in relationship to Jesus Christ. How healthy, vibrant, your walk with Him is. This uh, series is based off a book called, um, I'm sorry, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. If you have not picked up a copy yet, my wife and I are currently fighting over mine, so uh, maybe you need your own copy today. Uh, Feel free to pick that up. There's one in the back. It's 10 bucks. Here's the deal. If you don't have 10 bucks, give us five. If you don't have five, just take it, okay? Uh, It's not about the money. Uh, It's a really helpful tool to put into your hands to get you thinking about where you are in your health, in your relationship with Jesus. And so the question that Whitney is asking today is this. Are you more loving? Are you more loving? The question is getting at love, but it's also emphasizing a degree. Are you more loving? Right? And and emphasizing it maybe in reference to or in comparison to another time previously in your life uh, in a lesser degree. This idea that we are a people who have received love and in Christ that love is a mark of being a Christian, but it's also something that grows in us. That love is something that will and should be growing in us in the, we, in the way that we relate to one another, specifically in the body of Christ. Again, in the context of love, love is commanded. And the question is why? Why is love so important in our relationship with God and our relationship with one another? Why is loving one another in the body of Christ so important? I want to invite you to grab your Bibles this morning, 1 John verses, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Please follow along with me in your Bibles or follow along on the screens. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of God, and all God's people said, amen. First word, beloved. Beloved. Some versions say, dear friends. Beloved. Not a throwaway term. Not a throwaway term. You see it again in verse 11, right? Beloved. That the people... John is writing to, he is calling them who they are. Beloved. Not a throwaway term. What does that mean? Dearly loved. He's addressing people who are dearly loved. Now understand, uh, if you understand the context of, of 1 John and why he's writing, there's a lot of reassurances in John because there's people that are, that are causing insecurities in uh, the churches, pointing the finger, saying, oh no, you're not a Christian. We've got it all figured out. You're not that. And so John is spending much of his time reassuring and writing and giving evidences to what real Christian discipleship is and who they are. And so maybe here today, you feel that as well. Maybe you feel a little insecure about who you are, and someone's been pointing the finger at you, someone that's maybe disrupting and challenging some of your ideas about what you understand the scriptures and the gospel to reveal and to teach. Or maybe you're here today and you don't know who you are at all. You're trying to figure that out. Who am I? Who does God say that I am? John is writing to these people and he's telling them who they are. Beloved. Twice, dearly loved. In many ways, it's a pastoral warmth, right? That, that John, the writer, the apostle, is, is, is just conveying a, a, a pastoral warmth to them. That they can rest assured that John loves them. John cares about them deeply. But as you read the passage, and really the whole context of John, you know that as much as they are loved by John, these people are loved by someone so much more meaningful than John. God himself. That these people are not just people who are dearly loved by John, but these people are those who are dearly loved by God. Beloved. Those dearly loved by God the Father. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. 
Understand who you are first and foremost before you hear the rest that I'm about to say. You are dearly loved by God. Why? Is it because they're so great? Is it because uh, that God loves them because they love God? No. As we see in a few verses to come, that this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. So no, that's not why He can call them beloved. That's not why He can call them dearly loved by God. Why can John call these people dearly loved by God? We see, verse 9 and 10, why he can call them this. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God. No, but that he loved us. And sent his son into the world, I'm sorry, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the reason that he can call them dearly loved by God is because of a decisive action that God has taken on their behalf in Jesus Christ, his son. That the love of God is an action that he has taken to do something uh, for these people that did not love him. That's why he can call him, uh, these people, beloved. That's why he can call them dearly loved by God. Because God did something objectively, historically, in an action, not a feeling, not butterflies, but an action that brought about a redemptive purpose in their life. He gave them life. That's why he can call them beloved. The basis of any sense of feeling or knowing or experiencing love is an objective work of God done in Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners who do not love God. That is why he can call them beloved. Not because of something they have done to earn that love. Not because of some achievement that makes them lovable. Not because of some work that makes them acceptable. No, because God decided in and of his own nature and according to his own plan to act on their behalf, sending Jesus Christ into the world to die a sacrificial death on their behalf for their sins. That's why he can say, Beloved. And if there's anybody here today that's wondering whether or not God loves them, and they're beginning to ask that question out of a paradigm of, I love God, therefore God loves me, or out of a paradigm that I've done something great, therefore God will love me and accept me. That I've done some work, and that's why God would love me. Please rethink the nature 
and the outflow of the love of God and understand this. Maybe you're here today and you'd say this, God would never love me, God would never accept me because of what I have done and what I have not done. Your whole paradigm needs to shift today. You are loved because of Jesus Christ and his perfect work on your behalf even when you did not love God, even when you deserved God's wrath and anger for your sin. That, my friends, is the centrality of the good news about Jesus. That he has done it. That while you deserve death, he died. While all of your sin justly deserved the righteous indignation and anger of Almighty God, Jesus Christ in his death absorbed it all for you on the cross as your substitute. That's what propitiation means. That's a big theology word. Listen, it is a big theology word. And we should say it. No, I don't want to use those words. No, we should say it, but we should understand it too. That it is a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. That's what propitiation is. That's what Jesus did. That when he came into the world and he died on the cross and, and, and the Father turned away, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was in that moment that all of the wrath of God on human sin was dealt with sufficiently and eternally so that those who would know and embrace Jesus Christ by faith would never, ever be subject to it or fear it in any way, shape, or form. This is the love of God. This is the basis for John saying, Beloved, dearly loved by God. And that is the same for every one of you here who are in Christ. Dearly loved by God. Christian, those who trust Christ, you've been united to Christ by faith, you are loved. You are dearly loved by God. Don't let Satan or anyone else or even yourself tell you anything different. And again, not because you're great. Not because you did something. Not because you deserve it. But because in Christ, God has acted decisively on your behalf. You could not be more loved by God than you are now. You could not be more loved by God than you are right now, Christian. It's not conceivable. It's not possible for you to do something to add to this, to get more love from God. He did it all for you as an act of his goodwill and benevolence toward you just to give you his love. You couldn't do anything more and you can't be loved any more than you are right now. Rest in that, please. Rest in that. You're loved by God. You're loved by God. You can't do, be any more loved by him than you are right now. But understand this. There's still a command now that comes to us as people who are dearly loved by God. There's a consequence that comes with that kind of loving action. 
Jesus tells us what it is. John tells us what it is. Beloved, let us love one another. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That those loved by God are called to love one another. That's all I want to get today. This passage, those who are loved by God are called to love one another. Love all people? Yes. Love your neighbor? Yes. But specifically in this passage, it's calling us to be loving those who are of the household of the faith. That the Christian community is just postured and and living out love in relationship to one another. Beloved, let us love one another. In the context of love, here we are again. Love is commanded. But what is meant by that word? It's funny, sometimes I think we get the what God's love is, like, easily. But then when it goes, well, the command to love one another, what does that mean? That must mean that we, lo- we like everybody. That must mean that everybody makes us feel so good. Right? That everything's just jolly and perfect. You realize who he's commanding to love one another, right? Like people who are different from one another, people who have different perspectives, people that are annoying, right? People that think differently than you, uh, look differently than you, people that sin and will sin against you. He's telling sinful, unique, different people, oh yeah, oh by the way, you all gotta love each other. So is that what it is? Go feel good about each other and be happy and smile and everything's going to be perfect? Is that what it means? No, let's not, let's not redefine love in the ethics. Let's keep the same definition. Again, you could define love in a number of ways. We can go throughout the scriptures and emphasize this or that. But let's just look at the definition. Right? We talked about an action of God to send his son into the world to provide life bring about life in a sacrificial death on the cross. Now listen, you don't go do that. Jesus did that. You're not a substitutionary uh, atoning sacrifice for sinners. Amen. Right? That's not what you do. But understand this. I think that love that's being commanded here is the same word in the context of this kind of love gives us a little bit of indication about what he's commanding. He's saying make a decision. Right? Make a decision to give yourself for the good of another. Make a decision. To give of yourself for the good of another. Or to be more specific, make a decision to make sacrifices so that other people, well, that God's purposes are worked out in other people's lives. Just keep it there. Make a decision. I don't feel like it. Doesn't matter. Make a decision to give yourself away for the good of someone else, to bring about life in their life, to bring about their joy. Can we just leave it there? That's what he's commanding. Decisive, sacrificial action for the good of others in the body of Christ. That's what you're called to do. That's what the context of love promotes and calls us to, to that. Decisions about sacrifices 
and actions that bring about good in someone else's life. Really, good in Christ, God's purposes to be emphasized. So that's what we're called to do. We're called to live this out. And I think clearly, as people who are not perfect, who are, who are maturing and growing, by implication too, I think it's easy for us to say, this is something that we're going to grow in. It's going to be a big part of our sanctification, our growing in conformity to Christ. But this is our command, to love one another. But why? I think he gives a couple reasons here. I'm going to give you four, as briefly as I can. Four reasons why we should love one another. Again, why? Because, they're so, because other people are so great? That's not what it says. I mean, there's some great people out there. But that's not why. Is it because uh, they love us first? Do we love other people because they love us? That's not what it says, right? No. First of all, we love because it's commanded, and that should be sufficient, right? Jesus is Lord, and the Lord says love. So even there, right there, we could stop, and that could be sufficient. That could be the mic drop moment, because I said so. It's one of my favorites as a parent. Why? Because I said so. But why? Because I said so. I don't owe you an explanation. You hear me? getting that off my chest. But it's true, because I said so. But the command really has further basis here. First of all, loving one another evidences that we know God, right? And, and a lack of love is evidencing the opposite, that we don't know God, right? Let us love one another. Why? For love is from God, and everyone who has been born of God, and everyone who love, who, I'm sorry, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. That when we love one another, we give evidence to the fact that we know this God, this love is one that we've received and that we know. And when we love one another, it gives evidence to the fact that we know God, that we've been born of God, right? That that loving God has regenerated us, given us new life. And new life in God that is love is a life of love. You can't come from that God in regeneration and not come with that love when he is love, right? It's just it's consistency. We can't come from God and then not love. Inconsistent. So when we love one another, we give evidence to the fact that we know God and that we've been born of God. When we don't love one another, we're giving the opposite evidence. We don't know God because God is love. That's why we love one another. Two, we love because God so loved us. You may ask, well, why should we love in that way? Because that's the way that God loved us. Because that's what love is. Love is that, a decisive action to bring about good in someone else's life. 
God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. His love totally transforms our relationships together. Right? It's not just a vertical change that takes place, but a horizontal. If you get the gospel, right, of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, he made us alive. Yay! You also get the gospel of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Made two people one, reconciling them, destroying hostility. That the gospel is a package deal. New relationship with God, new relationship with his people. Reconciliation. We love because he loved us. What a privilege. uh, Fourth, we love because our love for one another brings to completion the very purposes of God's love. Look at what it says, verse 12. No one has ever seen God physically, except we're talking about Jesus while he was here on earth. No one has ever seen God. God is invisible. He's spirit. He came in flesh in Christ as God the Son. No one's ever seen God. He goes, but if we love one another, God abides in us. Do you hear that? If we love one another, we're experiencing the presence of God in us. And, he says, his love is perfected in us. What does that mean? It means that his purposes are brought to completion. Does that mean that his love perfected that when we love one another, we're loving one another perfectly? No. We're not perfect, not in this life. That's not what it means. It means that if we love one another, that we're experiencing the presence of God and we're bringing about, dependent upon that spirit, we're bringing about the whole purpose of having received that love in the first place. See, God is very purposeful. That when he loves us, he loves us on purpose. There's a particular fruit and effect and consequence that he wants to bring about in our lives even more than just get us out of hell. That he wants to give us his love in such a way that we receive it and then give it, share in it, reciprocate it, give and take back and forth with his people. He wants to see his love in his people. In their decisions, to sacrifice, to bring about life and gospel influence in their lives. That's what God wants. So what an opportunity we have when we love one another. We're bringing about the very purposes of God. Why love was ever given in the first place. It's like um, completing the circuit, one scholar said. God's sending his love. And when we love one another, we complete the circuit. Of his love. Electrician. Yeah. Yeah, I saw your face. My first illustration today. Isn't that great? Electrician. It's awesome. That's what love does. That's why we should love. So those loved by God are called to love one another. But let's admit it. I'm going to try to wrap this up as fast as I can. But let's admit it. This is not easy. Everyone's like, yeah, we know. I'm not doing it. Right? Because we know that loving others, even those in the body of Christ, 
even those in the church, even those in our small group, even those in our formation group, even the people in the foyer. Like you think about people, it's not easy to love. Not in the way that we've defined. Decisive, sacrificial action to bring about God's purposes out in somebody else's life. That's hard. That means we're giving up something. This is difficult. And why is loving other people so difficult? Why is it so easy for us to grow cold? And what makes loving people so difficult? You know what makes loving people so difficult? People make loving people so difficult. Someone get a little amen up in here? People make it hard. You know why? They, they hurt us. People hurt us. People say things. People don't say things that hurt. Right? People do things to us. Oftentimes, they could even don't do certain things that we would expect them to do or want them to do. And it hurts. Right? And hurt leaves scar tissue. Seems like that's the story of my life. Every time I get a little bump or a bruise, I'm carrying it around. Like I got my shoulder, my foot, my knee. It's like I'm a mess physically, you know? Like it's all these little things. But everywhere every time I go to use my shoulder, I feel just a little whoop. It's fine, but it's just a little scar tissue there. Relationships work that way too. It's like in relationship to other people, we're walking around with scar tissue. It's affecting our relationship. It's affecting the way we approach things. It affects the way we function in the context of community. Pain, hurt, leaves scar tissue. Right? It seems like it never heals. Hurt makes loving people hard. What about disappointment? Right? We come to community with especially church community. I've always seen people go, get really hurt, really frustrated in the context of the church, and divisions happen so quickly, disagreements get wild. Why do you think it, like, it's almost sometimes you look at, like, other people don't act like this, right? Like, my neighbors and I, we never get into these kind of squabbles. You know why? Because the relationships really matter. And we come to the church with certain expectations about what relationship's going to be like. It's going to be amazing because of Jesus. Man, I'm going to meet with this person. We're going to pray and life change. And then you're like, week seven? This is kind of dumb. Right? They said things that were kind of mean. I'm not opening up to them. And all of a sudden, the hurt runs deeper because the expectations were so much higher in the context of the church. You follow me? So disappointment. We tried that before. I'm not going to risk it again. I'm going to isolate. I'm going to back out. Disappointment makes it hard to love people. Criticism makes it hard to love people. People make it hard to love people. Sinners make it hard to love sinners. Am I right? Here's the deal. I make it hard too. They make it hard, I make it hard. It's easy for us to point the finger. It's easy for us to look on the outside and say, that's why I'm not loving people. Because they hurt me, disappointed me, let me down, criticized me. That's why. And we give ourselves an excuse. 
a way out. Yeah, but they're a bunch of jerks. But remember, we, we're not called to love because of how they treat us. Right? But that's what we do. And the truth is, it'd probably be good for some of us this morning to just confess that the reason it's hard to love is because of you. There's something going on in here. I know it's me. I know it's me. Right? I respond to sin. People sin against me. You know what I do with sin? Sin back. Woo-hoo. Right? And oftentimes, I just take a little step up. Like they, they, you know, they pinched me. Like, right? They pinched me in the butt. And then I punch him in the face. Twice. Because that's payback, right? It's taking a step up. It's a little punitive. People respond to sin with sin. That's what I do. Can I just confess it to you now? So it might be time for reflection and confession. I respond to sin with sin. I make loving people hard. I don't need much help from others. I'm really good at it, right? Hurt people hurt people. I've heard that phrase before. Hurt people hurt people. It's hard. It's what we do. Disappointment, rejection, hurt, the breeding ground of bitterness, resentment, rage. We respond to sin with sin. Right? You know why else loving is hard? And why I'm the reason why loving other people is hard? Because I don't want to love other people. What I mean by that is I don't want to make a decisive, sacrificial action. That is, give up something I love. I don't want to give up Saturday morning. I don't want to give up Sunday evening. I don't want to give up that game that's on. I don't want to give, I don't want to give it up. I don't want to give this money away. I don't want to make a decisive, sacrificial action for someone else's benefit, just surely on the basis of their need and the grace that's offered. I don't want to do that. Am I connecting with anybody here today? Let me put it differently. I'm selfish. I'm selfish. When it's hard, it's hard to love people because I'm selfish. I'm selfish. We're selfish people. Tim Keller, in his book, and I highly recommend it, short, preach, it's short book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He talks about how people don't need to think less of themselves. Right? Like, oh, I'm not that great. Like, the, they, like battling pride is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's hard, though. We love ourselves. We even when we don't love ourselves, we wallow and get focused on self-pity. We're always thinking about ourselves. Just the other side of pride is self-pity, right? Why? We're selfish. But there's freedom in being, uh, of thinking of yourself less, he talks about. He talks in his marriage book as well, that self-centeredness is the main problem in a marriage. In a covenant relationship, self-centeredness is the main problem 99 times out of 100. 
And I wonder if for some of us in the body of Christ, it's not the same. Covenant relationship, a relationship that's based on a promise, based on grace. I'm committed, I'm in. But really we come with a, with a narcissistic, uh, just we're consumed with ourselves, our needs, our desires, our wants. That really marriages crumble because of self-centeredness. And I wonder if community crumbles as well because of that same self-centeredness. What's in it for me? What have you done for me lately? Approach. Might be good for us to just think on this as I was processing this passage and just confessing sin that the biggest obstacle in my way to loving other people is myself. It's the biggest obstacle. My own sin. So why is loving people hard? Because people. Why is loving people hard? Because of me. People. Whether them or me. And so the question becomes, well, how do we then move forward with the possibility of loving somebody? Well, it's still a person. It's God. We're, uh, the solution is a person. Who God is, what God has done for us, that's what makes this desirable. It makes it possible. We're back to the gospel again. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Amen? It's God. God is, by His Spirit, the work of the Word in our hearts. God is what makes loving people possible. God is what rips out my selfishness and my pride over time and through circumstances as I engage the Scriptures, and I'm connected to loving community because I'm connected to people. Man, my sin is so obvious the more interconnected I am. And so the Spirit of God is saying, yeah, there's, a, there's where you need conformity. Conform. Here's my Spirit to provide and help you conform and to grow. Because love is something that we receive and planted into our hearts. We couldn't be more loving, but man, we can grow in that love as we constantly receive and consider the forgiveness, the healing, and the freedom that comes from an action of God done for us to give us life. Those loved by God are called to love one another. When you're struggling, he's the answer. When you don't have motivation, the cross of Christ. When you're tired, think of Christ. We had that conversation in our home this week. What about Jesus? Have we, have we ever thought about Jesus? The way that we're treating each other? Does Jesus have anything to say to this? Does the crucifixion have anything to say to your preferences and your demands and the inconveniences of this home? What about Jesus? What about Jesus? For our relationships here in this room, the 75 members at renovation, what about Jesus? I know you don't feel like it. I know you can get excuses and, and back out easily, but what about Jesus? It changes everything. Jesus changes everything. The cross changes everything. When love for God's people grows in God's people, it's a sign of spiritual health. It's growing. When love for God's people grows in God's people, it's a sign of spiritual health. Because those loved by God are called to love one another. And the Spirit of God abides in us and brings about those purposes as we do it. 
So the question becomes, how can I grow in my love for others? I want you to ask that today. How can I grow? I'm going to give you three simple answers and try to finish quickly. Sorry for how long this is going. Uh, It is what it is. How can I grow in my love for others? Number one, consume yourself with the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love because he first loved us. Consume yourself with the gospel. If your heart is growing cold, maybe you haven't thought or considered Christ and his work for you enough. Spend time in the gospels. Spend time in the word of God. Let it saturate and integrate into your mind. Don't just read it and close it, but think and meditate. Consider the greatness of the grace of our Lord on our behalf. You can't, you can't do it enough. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Him laying down his life. Your thoughts and consideration of that truth is what will motivate you. It will be fuel to bring about your own love and sacrifice. Number two, pray often for the good of those you struggle to love. This is one my wife has taught me over the last 20 years. When somebody is driving her bonkers, do you know what she starts to do? Just start praying for them. Lord, bless them. Protect them. Flourish. Cause them to flourish. I want to punch them in the noggin. But Lord, I want you to bless them. Give them joy. Give them peace. Heal them of this. Lord, all of your covenant blessings, just, just infinitely provide. You know what happens over time as you're praying for someone? Actually, you know what you're doing in that moment? Whether you feel it or not, love's not a feeling. Guess what you're doing in that moment? You're loving them. And guess what happens when you don't feel like it? <laughs> over time, guess what happens all of a sudden as you interact with that person because you've been praying them and you, fa- you fasted a meal and you're praying for their good, guess what happens all of a sudden next time you see them? Your heart is warmed to them. If you're struggling to love somebody, commit to praying for them. Commit to praying for them. Number three, obey Jesus. All right? Back to the because I said so. Obey Jesus. All right? Galatians talk about living by the Spirit. Ooh, somebody get goosebumps? I just said the Holy Spirit. See, oftentimes we think like living by the Spirit is, ooh. You know what living by the Spirit is? You're at the crossroads of a decision. The flesh says, who cares about them? The Spirit says, serve them. You know what living by the Spirit is? Walking in obedience. There's no goosebumps. It's obedience. The Spirit empowers obedience. So obey the Lord. Trust Him. He knows what is good. You've received His love. You couldn't be loved any more loved than you are right now. So just walk in faithfulness. Obey Him. Trust Him. Live by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. You'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. Decisively and sacrificially, do something for the good of others. Posture, structure your lives so that you can obey. 
Is there enough margin in your life, in your schedule, in your money, in your emotion, in your energy levels? There's enough margin in your life so that when those opportunities come and they're staring at you in the face, that you're able now to walk in obedience? Or is there always, I feel that all the time. So serve each other, Reno. Serve like crazy to the glory of God. Give all your money away for each other, for the glory of God. Give it away. Don't hold on. Pray for each other. Host each other. Have someone in your home over dinner. Invest in them. Ask them questions. Care about who they are. And thus obey Jesus and fulfill the law. Right? Love is the fulfillment of the law. Right? I pray that this just prompts some questions and thoughts in your mind, get you thinking about where love is, you more loving? Maybe yes, maybe no. I sometimes think about this question and I think to myself, in some ways, absolutely more loving, all praise be to God. In other ways, I think, man, the situations and scenarios that God's brought into my life just continue to reveal my struggle to do so. Sometimes I feel very cold. I pray that you would grow and be warmed by God's Spirit and that we would be known as a church in this place and outside this place as a deeply loving community centered around Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word from John, for your truth. Lord, we confess together that we often fall short and that we struggle and that people hurt us, oh God. We pray that you would heal our hearts, that the grace of Jesus Christ would be sufficient to cover the sins of others and our own as we respond to sin with our own sin. God, bring about your purposes. May we love one another and evidence the fact that you live in us, that your presence is with us, and that your love would be perfected, that your purposes will be brought to completion here. Lord, if there's anybody here today that's just feeling unloved and hurt, I pray that your gospel would minister to them, that you would heal them and warm them and set them free. I pray they would turn to Jesus, trust in him, his finished work on their behalf, and walk in the assurance that they're accepted and loved by you. And I pray that if there's anybody here that's struggling with bitterness and resentment and anger in their hearts toward another brother and sister in Christ, I pray that you would bring healing and forgiveness, and joy, and reconciliation, so that we might accurately display the very people that we are. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.